0: Thank you James. Um, So I'm not from around here, but I did find a few pubs last night, so um, I can answer those sorts of questions. Um, Okay, so I'm from the uh, Humanities Research Institute at the University of Sheffield. Um, We were established in 1992 so we've been, going, we've been going for quite a while now, um, and our mission, as it says on there, is to support the innovative use of technology in arts and humanities research, as both a method of inquiry and a means of dissemination. And we are, in the HRI, entirely project-based. Okay, so at the moment we don't do any, any teaching or anything like that. We're entirely project-based, receiving all of our funding from external sources, such as research councils. And we receive all our funding from external sources and we're entirely self-sufficient. Okay? We don't receive any funding from, uh, from faculty, although they do um, underwriters. So we are very, very practice-based. And this is an important point, because in Sheffield we view the digital, hu- digital humanities to be an essentially practice-based activity. I personally don't see how on earth you can talk about the digital humanities without substantial experience of actually doing the digital humanities and yet there are those who do lots of people have tended to theorize and intellectualize the digital humanities some people even dream of it becoming an academic discipline which is a bit like suggesting that editing should be an academic discipline in its own right and that one should have departments of editing so I'm delighted to be here talking to you today because Oxford is one place that I feel has been at the forefront of the digital humanities for many, many years. And, as evidenced by this workshop this week, uh, Oxford has a very practice-based approach uh, to digital humanities. So, in this talk, I'm I'm going to talk about some of the aspects of that practice that have a wider value. Because digital humanities is practice-based, you need to develop practical knowledge and skills in order to undertake it. As a result, you end up with a practical knowledge and skills that are useful beyond academia. Because let's not forget, we live in an information age. Data is a capital asset. It has an economic value now which is greater than most tangible things. For example, the the creative industries often refer to digital as their lingua franca. They create, trade, and disseminate content in digital form, whether they be journalists, advertisers, the BBC, television companies, etc. National governments, technology giants such as Google, and even errant CIA employees are all involved in very public arguments over the collection and use of personal data. Citizenship services such as local government, health and social welfare are all moving to online services that are focused around personalisation through data gathering and the use of mobile devices. And even retailers are increasingly holding less and less stock on their premises, directing you to their online shops instead. How many of you who hold Nectar cards have been surprised when buying groceries online to discover that Sainsbury's have a record of every single item you have ever bought from their physical shops? Everything is about data. Add to this data deluge, the idea that we are now swamped with information, and the challenge is not how do we acquire information, but how do we acquire what we want from the vast body of information that is now available to us. So, how does, how does this relate to the digital humanities? Well, all these sectors are involved in understanding information, and information is created by humans. And it can often be messy, unstructured, and illogical. Modern information is very similar to the record of our human past, such as manuscripts, documents, and inscriptions. It rarely occurs in neat columns and rows. And if there is one thing that most humanities people are good at, it's having the analytical skills to find, select, organise, and interpret messy information digital humanities enhances these skills because it seeks to address messy information using current technology. So in this talk I'm going to give you a survey of digital humanities as practiced at the University of Sheffield focusing on three areas of practice which I believe develop knowledge and skills that have an employability value within the wider information within the wider information environment. So number 1 techniques and methodologies for understanding and communicating complex knowledge domains number two I'll be looking at creating and curating data and number three i'll be looking at project management so understanding and communicating complex knowledge domains what do i mean by knowledge domain well i mean everything that constitutes a particular area of knowledge everything that is needed in order to understand it research questions in the humanities often require us to draw together a complex body of evidence and apply methodologies in order to analyze and interpret the evidence Edition building is a ca- classic example of this whereby editors would traditionally pull pull together and analyze all the extant witnesses of a particular text in order to understand the history of its transmission and in some instances establish an authoritative text so here we've got the canterbury tales uh, website this isn't actually officially released yet uh, but what this is doing is providing access to eight complete manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales. Now for those of you uh, for those of you who don't know about the Canterbury Tales it's an unfinished work by Chaucer we don't have the manuscripts we don't have a manuscript um, surviving in Chaucer's own hand so but well, there are approximately ooh, 83 or 84 extant manuscript witnesses and they're dispersed all over the world in, in um, the world's libraries and private collections so a typical question that a chaucer scholar might want to ask of the canterbury tales is what did chaucer actually write or how are all these manuscripts related to each other how did they descend from from an original that chaucer that chaucer um, uh, probably wrote um, and obviously if, uh, if you've got eight if you've got 80 plus manuscripts dispersed around the world's libraries it's pretty much physically impossible um, to be able to, to look at those. So, for example, a typical question, a typical thing that a Chaucer scholar might want to do would be to take the first line there, one that with all, with her shower suit. Uh, they might want to compare that in this manuscript, which is the Hengist manuscript, um, and see how it occurs in all the other 80-plus manuscripts. And, obviously, that's physically impossible because they're all scattered around the world, unless one has vast travel budgets. But even if you had all those manuscripts in one place, even if all those 80 volumes were here in this room, it would still be physically impossible to compare line one in every single one of those manuscripts. So this is an obvious area where where, uh, technology can assist what is, in effect, a very, very traditional form of of data analysis. People have tried it the hard way in the past, uh, and uh, quite uh, Quite a number of people actually died in the process of doing this because it's such a lengthy um, because it's such a lengthy activity. Uh, whereas here we can quite simply move some move some manuscripts across. I'll just do this very quickly. Okay, and then we can here we can just essentially sort of line up the manuscripts. line up um, line one in those three witnesses against the, against the current witness. So technology enables us to do, do this sort of thing a lot more simply, but we also have to bear in mind, particularly in this case, that this is Middle English. So in doing this, we've had to address a range of technical issues, such as the representation of Middle English characters and scribal practices in the transcriptions. We've had to understand which techniques for analysing the data are useful for the scholar. So we started off with something that was very, very, um, uh, very, very computational and automated. We developed algorithms that would automatically analyse all of these lines and, and present you with the results. Um, and we, we kind of, we kind of discovered that we kind of realised that that. Um, um, that was that was actually producing slightly misleading results, and that what a, what your average Chaucer scholar wants to be able to do is to just have the evidence put in front of them in a in a digestible format, and for them to do the to do the processing and the thinking. So we have to un- we have to understand which uh, which techniques are appropriate we also had to understand which line numbering do we use this is such you know this is this is a, a this is a tradition of editing that actually now has three line numbering systems so we had to sort of take take all, all of that on board also do we privilege one manuscript version over another when comparing texts Editing in the the, uh, digital humanities actually builds on a very long tradition, which extends back to the days of Ptolemaic Alexandria and the attempts of the Alexandrian librarians to compare the manuscript editions of Homer's Iliad to try and establish an authoritative text. So when when we're building this sort of thing, we're actually actually building on a very, very long tradition of of editing. Another, Another example of quite a complex... Knowledge domain is uh, if I can remember oops that 's the volume is this this is a Cistercian monastery um, in two, in the year two thousand we embarked on an ambitious project to model reconstructions of five Cistercian monasteries in Yorkshire, quite a um, an ambitious project. Building the models required a fantastical amount of research from an enormous body of evidence. And here the detail was key because we couldn't just guess what the missing parts were like, because um, obviously these monasteries are not are not complete, they're just um, archaeological uh, remains now. Uh, we had to undertake a huge amount of research to establish what they looked what they looked like. And the reason we had to do that is because we understood that there was significance in every little piece of detail within those buildings. So if one is to interpret the buildings um, accurately and realistically, you you need to try and reproduce that detail as far as possible. And one of the things that we found is that often most of the research in digital humanities projects is actually undertaken at the point of data creation, rather than by using the finished resource. This is because data creation often requires a level of familiarity with the evidence that is unprecedented. So, if we go back to the Canterbury Tales, I personally transcribed countless manuscripts of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, every individual letter. And transcribers of medieval manuscripts will often tell you that in the process of tra- transcribing, they come to know the scribe, because their uh, their um, their relationship with the with the with the text is so so great and achieved such a great familiarity as it turned out the amount of research one could do with the Cistercian data set once it was completed was limited because it was so ahead of its time I mean this is the year 2000 um, the uh, the person uh, the person who did most of the modelling uh, just put in so much detail into that that it that it was essentially impossible to stream this over the over the web at the time and it's still difficult at the moment we're now sort of looking at reducing the detail in these models to try and create some kind of sort of um, virtual world incredibly in the year 2000 it was in the in the original funding proposal it was proposed that these would be available over mobile phone devices in the year 2000 incredible the funder I think smelt um, uh, uh, smelt something a bit fishy there, and uh, forced us to remove the mobile element from the uh, from the costings. Okay, so here we have, um, oops, here we have another example. Um, it's uh, what I'm going to show you is a technique commonly called network analysis. Uh, let's just bring it up so um, so this technique commonly called network analysis um, it's a type of data uh, data visualization um, it's, used, it's it's commonly used today um, to, to uh, in order to understand things such as social networks um, and the development of knowledge across across the web but we can also use it in the in the humanities and in the humanities here the idea is that we understand that there's a lot of information um, about uh, relationships and patterns within a particular subject domain that's not explicit in the evidence. So, for example, you might have a you might have a document with per, you might have a document with person A in it, and you might have another document with person B in it as his um, as two historical documents. Person A and person B might have known each other, might even have worked together, but that that information is not ev- is, has not been recorded in anything they've left or anything that's been left behind them and it's only when you start pulling lots and lots of information together that you start to see patterns and and relationships emerging and here in this particular uh, in this particular project this is a pilot project that was funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation and and we for this we have the we we, we this there was the assumption that the rise of English Um, and English literary culture originated from London and that it was actually driven by people who were working in the civil service and working for the government and that uh, that the scribes were basically people whose day job was uh, writing out documents for the the government, Uh, they were doing a bit of literary stuff in the evenings and that actually their patrons uh, and uh, that their patrons were actually people who were also sort of quite prominent in in the government and we actually uh, by um, analyzing the by uh, presenting the data in this way we were actually able to establish that that was indeed the case uh, we were able to uh, we were able to see relationships between uh, we, we started to realize that scribes uh, were, were actually working in the daytime were working for the same for the same government departments but there's nothing you know, there's no uh, there's nothing anywhere that tells you that those scribes knew each other they must have known each other, and they were, they both you know they happen to be they to be transcribing um, uh, poetic works um, sort of on the side. So uh, so that's network that's network analysis, and that's this is quite a complex and formal representation of a knowledge domain it's a very complex data set comprising objects such as people places documents and events etc and then we record the relationships between them so it's quite an unusual it's quite an unusual and strange way of going through and recording data sitting in front of manuscripts when you're used to actually when you're sort of more familiar with sitting there and transcribing them out um, um, letter by letter. So this is is also an area of uh, data modelling that is often often referred to as ontology, or uh, web web ontologies. Uh, Web ontologies have received some bad press in uh, recent years, um, and I I put that down largely due to uh, the development of the the web ontology markup language, uh, which I've always felt has been a little bit off-putting, for people because these are very, very complex relationships to try and record Um, and once you start throwing in a lot of XML in there it becomes very, very, um, it becomes quite sort of um, challenging to keep a track on things. So the way we did it uh, was we just took the view that if it looks like a database and it sounds like a database and it smells like a database it's probably a database approach that you need to to take. Um, So if for example... So part of the part of the challenge of this project was to see if there's to see if there's another way of coming up with um, uh, with uh, this sort of data modeling in terms of actually in terms of actually creating the, the data. So here you can create lots of objects, and then you can build relationships between the objects, and all the relationships are formally. Formally defined. Uh, were we successful with this? Well, the jury is still out. Um, is, the, is the network diagram a useful tool for research? Again, this is a, th- these are questions we're asking ourselves, and I think the jury is still out on that. Um, is, it, you know, is it just presentation over substance? What we do know is that the needs of research in the humanities are challenging. Um, In this example, determining appropriate data structures, user interfaces and visual representations of data had to be done all within the context of medieval manuscript studies. Personally, I think visualising Twitter feeds is child's play by comparison. And then, just quickly, another... uh, ..another example of of, uh, having to sort of model a... Uh, a, a complex knowledge domain is uh, locating London's past. Uh, now, here, what we're doing is we're mashing up, mashing up a number of historical data sets on an old map of London, and the datasets include criminal records, taxation records, archaeological records, population data, etc. And the underlying engine is Google, is Google Maps. So, just quickly, oops. Uh, so, if we just go to you can see Google Maps there, and what we've done is we've stuck a couple of old maps on top of it. In fact, if we if we blow this up, oops, you can even still use the Street View facility to get a sense of how the road layout has changed somewhat. And you can see that actually um, the, um, uh, the Thames was actually wider as well Um, and whoops that wasn't that isn't what it looked like in um, this period by the way (laughs) Um, i'm just trying to close that down okay so there's lots of data we can plot on here um, and the idea is that we can bring sort of different data sets together so just on a just on a very basic, just do something very quick and basic. Oops. Okay, and you can alter the, you can alter the um, <coughs> form of presentation. Okay. Um, this is like pretty uh, there's not there's like it's difficult for me to talk for an example of this because this is really sort of very, um, very sort of historical-based uh, stuff. Uh, but what I can talk about is the uh, is, is the complexity of uh, doing this. The uh, the mapping side of it, um, in terms of uh, managing the old uh, the, the old the old maps that we've used, were done by the Museum of L- by Museum of London Archaeology, and the challenges they had were how do you, how do you get a map such as this to actually map onto something like Google Maps, Uh, when uh, when maps were produced in this period they had no real sort of grounding in the real world. They didn't use longitude and latitude or anything like that, it was purely representational. Um, So uh, one of the challenges of the project was to try and anchor this map to the real map of London as it is today um, and to try and get the the streets that do exist to line up etc so you can see if, if you see the sort of the slight curvature on the on the right hand side it's because we've had to we've had to distort the map and warp it to actually uh, to actually fit in fit onto uh, the original um, so there were there were um, and we used sort of uh, we used um, a number of um, points that would that we knew were cons- constant through time as our, um, as our waypoint so um, the cathedral being the cathedral being one of them um, so um, um, understa- understanding how to understanding how to how to pin all these old maps onto in, into using um using a modern um, um, ge- um geolocation system was one challenge uh, the other challenge we had is that with our data sets where there weren't uh, where there weren't places, um, Uh, marked up in the data sets we then had to use a a series of natural language processing techniques to try and pull out place names etc but even when you've got place names and even with somewhere like somewhere like London we're still we're still running into uh, running into issues. So for example, if you take a, if you take a street such as like King Street, um, there are lots of King Streets in London, so which King Street are we, are we talking about? So, so we had to run algorithms that were actually trying to grab information from the surrounding text to try and deduce which King Street we're talking about. Was it in this ward or was it in, in that ward? And even such a, something such, such as the Strand, um, yeah, a road like that is very. A street like that is uh, is uh, is considerably long, and it's important when you're, you know, when you're, say, for example, plotting crime locations that you get the right part of the strand. So we had to do quite a lot of work to try and work out uh, whereabouts along the strand um, these locations actually relate to. And what we found with what we found with uh, this particular project is that uh, you know, we've, all heard, you know, we've all heard a lot to do with sort of data linkage and uh, mashups, etc. cetera. Uh, what we found with this project was that to produce really good um, data mashups, you actually need quite a, uh, quite a limited number of data sets and to understand each of those data sets in quite considerable detail. To A, to get the most out of them, but also to ensure that, the, to ensure that, their, to ensure that their marriage um, uh, makes make sense to the, the end user. Okay, so that's understanding complex knowledge domains. The next area of digital humanities practice which has value across a range of other sectors, beyond academia, is data creation and curation. Now, here I'm talking about digital data derived from analogue originals rather than born digital data such as social media and animation. Absolutely everything we do in the digital humanities is dependent on the way in which we create and look after data. Getting it wrong limits what we can do with data in the present, as well as endangering its durability over the longer term. Fortunately, the digital humanities has always understood this. In fact, Oxford was very much the trailblazer with the work of the Oxford Text Archive and the Text Encoding Initiative, which I believe is still still going strong today. I also understand that TI was very influential in the evolution of XML from SGML. And XML, of course, now underpins much of the modern world wide web. So don't let anybody tell you that the humanities doesn't have impact. Uh, regardless of whether we are dealing with image digitization, though, full text transcription, OCR capture, database compilation, or audio-video recordings, or even 3D modelling, regardless of what we're dealing with, they're usually two key issues to consider first the quality of the data capture or creation process a high level um, a high level of accuracy means a more useful digital surrogate because more people can do more things with it plus the data will still be convincing in the future when technology and our expectations have advanced however this often has to be balanced against pragmatic issues such as the cost of digital capture second key thing are the standards and formats that are used to encode store and deliver the data Technology is always changing. If we don't agree on and abide by standards, much of what we do will become defunct, unusable and incomprehensible quite quickly. So now I'm gonna show you some not so good examples of this. Um, uh, First of all, um, actually bring up the John Johnson collection, and I'm going to search for my surname, which is quite quite an unusual word. It's unusual as surnames go. And it's, it's generally an unusual word. And if the internet connection is still there, it is. Um, so we've got seven results. Um, so we've got an occurrence in this document on beauty. And then what I'm trying to locate is Switch to the JPEG view. Um, Has that done that? Yeah, and then to the page that the word actually appears on. Okay. There you go. (laughs) Tepid. Okay. So, how did we get from PI double D to tepid? Well, actually, we've got another site here. This is the site that reveals all. This is one that we did in Sheffield. And basically, it's, a, it's, um, uh, it's a, um, an aggregated search engine. So basically, it pulls in data from a range of online historical resources and enables you to search them um, uh, consistently. And if we type PID into this, John John, the John Johnson collection is included in this. Um, Okay, so here in the John Johnson collection, if we do view all, okay, we've got six results rather than seven. But we did check the John Johnson collection's seven results, and one of their results is wrong in the sense that there's no occurrence of, seems to be no occurrence of PID whatsoever. Well, here you can see with the highlight there, you can see. What's, go- what's going on here? There's a lot of there's a lot of gobbledygook, and some of that go- gobbledygook um, seems to have um, um, seems to reveal the word um, PID. Um, so uh, what Connected Histories is doing is revealing the data which underlies the John Johnson digital resource. In the real resource, you would you would you would never see this. You would always be directed to the images and left wondering why the results it is giving you are so peculiar. John Johnson was captured using digital photography and then OCR was used to create a searchable version. The searchable version lies beneath the images, so you never actually see them. The age and quality of some of the documents meant that the OCR obviously struggled to to represent the characters accurately. Whilst the scale of the project, 174,000 pages, meant that it would have been prohibitively expensive to have humans correct the OCR. As such, the project relies on the search engine to use a range of error correction algorithms to to produce near convincing results. The problem here is that the usefulness of the OCR relies entirely on the search engine. The OCR itself is quite unreadable to humans, which raises the question of how useful this data would be on its own. One could argue, of course, that it's the digital images which are important as data over the long term, and that the OCR is merely a low-cost res- uh, solution to meet contemporary needs. Now, something worse than John Johnson is, um, is a resource called um, is a resource known collectively as the British Library newspapers. Um, that looks like gobbledygook, but that's actually Welsh, so that's actually uh, correct. Okay. Um, which is why I didn't use that as the example, why I picked on John Johnson instead. Um, But uh, the British Library newspapers, it's the same approach, same techniques, and it suffers from the same problems. Now, British Library newspapers, when we uh, we indexed them for connected histories, um, I think we we, uh, counted uh, about 15 billion items of data. And and a good third, at the very least, is um, gobbledygook. Um, and yet, the JISC often, the JISC will always cite the British Library newspapers as the most used humanities res- online digital humanities resource. And yet, a good third of it, at least, is impenetrable by search, which raises the question of how useful is it as a as a resource, as a, as a modern version of microfilm. Assuming there are people here who uh, who know, who remember microfilm, um, as a modern. As a modern version of microfilm, um, is probably, you know, it's obviously much better. Uh, but in terms of being able to use search as part of your research methodology, so for example, if you're wanting to do any uh, make any um, uh, quantitative assumptions about the content of uh, nine, 18th and 19th century newspapers, it's pretty useless. The results are, the results are always going to be misleading because there's a third of the data that you cannot penetrate uh, reliably. Now, just to prove that it's not... Um, uh, that we're not exempt from this in Sheffield, this is the Hartlib Papers. This is just a project description. I don't have the real version to show you. And the Hartlib Papers was the HRI's founding project, started in the late 1980s. The idea was to make available a searchable version of the complete text of Samuel Hartlib's manuscripts. That's 25,000 folios. At the time, it was a groundbreaking idea. And at the time, we used the very latest cutting-edge technology. We had PC computers running an early Windows DOS operating system with transcriptions in Microsoft. Microsoft's Word for DOS, we had digitised images in stunning black and white 72 DPI, which you can see an example of here. It was all archived on 5-inch floppy disks. It was searchable using a piece of software called Topic, which was owned and licensed to us at great cost by a company called Verity. And the whole product, when finished, was available to purchase from a publisher called University Microfilms on two compact discs for a mere £4,000. Which wasn't seen to be a great deal for this sort of thing in those days. Towards the end of the project, Microsoft radically overhauled its operating system and word processing software. This is towards the end of the project, not after the project, it's towards the end of the project. But Verity, the company that provided the search technology, were unable to update their own software. As such, the Hartley Papers CD-ROM, costing £4,000, couldn't be used on the computer systems that everyone was using at the time it was published. The British Library had to resurrect an old PC from its basement for public access. In short, the Hartley Papers was obsolete before it was even published. Over time, we decided to release an updated version but had problems recovering the data because current versions of Microsoft Word struggled to understand files that had been created using earlier versions of Microsoft Word. So even if you can make the argument that, you know, Microsoft is the de facto word processing package, it will always be here, so let's forget all this open standard stuff and stick with Word. It just shows you that even even within the Microsoft family, um, it's it's not always... uh, um, your data's not always going to be uh, durable. We're about to release a third version, this time on the web, for free, and with all data in an XML format. We finally got over the guilt of the people that we've charged £4,000 for. I think they've had enough time to, uh, you know, to get value um, out, of, out of that. But the Hartley Papers Project essentially charts our evolving understanding of the need for standards and what happens when we don't use them. Now, quickly, a very um, a good good example of data management. This is a system we built for the Courtauld Institute and Gallery. The data is properly created using open source um, standards. Just uh, quickly, oops. Curators can create their own content. And because the data is properly curated, we can push it out to different devices and have the data's presentation optimised for each device. If you view this on an iPad, you'll see a version which is optimised for tablet devices, and the mobile version looks very different. The content curation and interface issues we have had to address when designing these are actually no different to the issues which, say, Sainsbury's, John Lewis, and B&Q have to address when developing their online stores. But Lorna Hughes said... Uh, pointed out to me once that if you look at John Lewis's website, the amount of user testing and thought and design that has gone into that interface and that presentation, that presentation of data is probably far greater than we ever do in the, uh, in the digital humanities. Uh, and then for an extremely good example of data curation would be our Old Bailey proceedings. Do a search for Cummings. See what James predecessors were up to. Uh, okay, we've we got is this highway robbery? Uh, okay, so I'll just pick any of these. And then here if we looked, if we look scroll down the screen, we can view the xml so here's the xml uh, you can see the you can see here the investment we've made in detailed semantic markup and the investment has, has paid off as far as we're concerned old bailey enables users to conduct sophisticated searching and we can even generate statistical graphs and charts all because of the investment in the data and it has become the center of a growing universe of online resources why? Because this data is highly structured, which means that other people's projects have been able to do other things with it. And we're now talking about, two, we're talking about 200, approximately 200,000 um, records. Um, compared with the John Johnson, you know, it's an equivalent number. Now, obviously, this cost, probably costs a lot more money than the John Johnson, um, than the OCR aspect of the John Johnson, Uh, collection um, and it took much longer to deliver um, but I think the I think the results um, speak for itself in terms of what's happened to this project since we since we launched it and what other people have been able to do with it the old the, the old Bailey proceedings is 10 years old it was 10 years old in April so if you want any evidence of the value of good structured data using open standards this is probably it third and finally I'm going to talk about project management Uh, This is one area of the digital humanities which is even more important than understanding complex knowledge domains and creating data properly. When trying to intellectualise the digital humanities, it is commonly overlooked, and yet much of the digital humanities is actually project-based. And project management is often the main difference between a successful project and an unsuccessful project. It might seem an obvious thing to say, but its its impact shouldn't be underestimated. There is a reason why project management figures so prominently in, the, in research proposals uh, uh, and uh, funder guidelines. There's a reason why the JISC invests so much time and energy into developing good project management practice in the projects which it supports. Because if project management is bad, the project doesn't deliver and that affects all of us. There was a time when the AHRC and others used to fund pure digitisation projects. But then they stopped and one even sensed for a while that funders were even turning their backs on the digital altogether. My own view is that this was because too too many funders had their fingers burnt doling out large sums of money to people who couldn't manage projects properly. It often used to amaze me that an academic with a research idea can consider themselves capable of managing a budget of over half a million pounds, overseeing the workloads of multiple personnel, managing complex development processes and delivering sophisticated end products based on having written a book on the the research subject. Whenever I used to ask these colleagues, would you give me half a million pounds of your own money based on this amount of information, the amount of information that you're, that, you're, that you're providing in your bid. They would invariably respond to me with, you must be joking. In my experience, most academics struggle to put together a basic timetable of research. For example, the expression months one to 36, do the research, that is not a timetable however the breakdown of travel costs to archives and conferences that was all that was all that's always um, sufficiently detailed but most digital humanities projects are actually involved in a production process in which multiple members and staff and stakeholders are involved so it's often the digital humanities practitioner who imposes sound project management on a research project because these are essential skills whether it be establishing initial technical specifications for inclusion in the funding proposal, understanding the research methodology and the techni- and how the technology can, uh, can address that, acquiring reproduction rights, transcribing pages, tagging names, deploying staff and technical developers, developing a prototype interface and preparing documentation. The clock is ticking, and the practitioner has to dovetail all of this with the needs of the project's research program. Now I can show you a lot of projects which have had good sales Management, um, a lot of projects at Sheffield, a lot of project projects at Oxford, a lot of projects from elsewhere. Uh, but you know, as we all know, you only really learn about good project management by looking at mistakes. So which project am I going to choose? Um, I mean, I'm actually going to show you a Sheffield project <laughs> to be politically safe. Uh, okay, so this is Fo- Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, complete transcriptions of four, uh, of four um the, the four editions of uh, the Acts Monuments produced in Fox's lifetime—a um, vast undertaking—and um, you can basically um, work through, navigate through the text, and there's um, and there's commentaries and etc. Um, etc. Et this is possibly the most poorest managed project I've ever uh, I've ever come across. It started in 1992. It was hopelessly overambitious, transcribing and tagging four complete editions of Fox's Book of Martyrs, each edition being around 2,000 pages, transcribing and tagging them three times, okay, to check for, uh, to, check for um, to, to rule out errors, et cetera. It predates, the, it predates the tendency to at least have the first version um, shipped out to some other part of the world to be transcribed more quickly and at, uh, and at lower cost. Every, it set out to tag every single person and place, researching and writing up biograph- biographies and encyclopaedia accounts for every single person and place. It set out to translate every piece of Latin and Greek right, and writing commentaries for every section and story. The overambition of this project was compounded by poor management. The timetable kept slipping. There was no connectivity between the work of different individuals. Some staff were tagging names in the transcriptions, whilst others were simply recording names in the pages on which they occurred in an access database. All the staff were transcribing the Latin and Greek phrases in Microsoft Word documents, with nobody thinking about how all these different types of data would be brought together to form a consistent, durable data set. Three different pagination systems were developed, and the three merged and became confused in the data. Halfway through the project, a technical officer, given a free reign, but intimidated by the SGML tagging language, decided that it was better to convert everything into lovely pretty HTML and bin the SGML originals. This single act of stupidity set the project back years, but the project management team had no idea of this at the time. The project gradually realised that the tasks it had set itself couldn't be achieved. But unfortunately, it kept its head in the sand about the true extent of the problems. The project got through around 36 members of staff. It burnt through approximately £1 million of public funds. It started in 1992, and in 2010, that's 18 years later, it was still unfinished. Now, the reason I'm dwelling on this, um, and the reason it sort of feels so personal, is that in 2011, because there was no funding for... No longer any funding for this project, and because we had, you know, we didn't have the personnel and the resource um, to um, uh, to help them out. And I basically spent every Saturday and Sunday for a year in the office trying to trying to um, trying to deliver this. Um, And what we end up with is an interface that seeks to present a unified resource, but you quickly discover that, for example, the detailed commentaries uh, are patchy in their occurrence. There's a lot of problems under the surface that this interface tries to cover up. But everything that went wrong with this project was down to poor management, sort of losing the grip on the timetable, Um, not really understanding how all these, quite large, quite complex, data sets should be brought together. So basic stuff to do with data uh, data management and uh, and, um, uh, timetabling of personnel. So everything that went wrong with the project was down to poor project management, whereas everything that makes projects such as Old Bailey Online successful is ultimately down to good project management. We have successfully delivered projects in the HRI of similar size to Fox's Book of Martyrs over the years, But we've done it within three to four years with far less members of staff um, and and with significantly less funding. And it's simply down to the way in which you're managing um, the process. So there is, in my view, there is no digital humanities without sound project management. There's only an intellectual discourse which seeks to theorise it. Without sound project management, there will be very little to theorise about. And this, I believe, is the main transferable skill which arises from being a practitioner in the Digital Humanities. Whether you're a researcher, a technical developer or a manager on the team, this is the one aspect of the Digital Humanities which has a value in just about every other sector and industry you can think of. Because the project tends to be the organising unit when developing any product or service from heritage organisations, libraries, galleries, and television production companies, to information technology, SMEs, retail companies, marketing agencies, and dare I say, even financial services. So, you know, we, we can combine sound project management with your deep understanding of complex knowledge domains, whether it be whether you're a scholar of medieval French manuscripts, a linguist, or a historian of the early modern period, and we can combine it with your knowledge of issues surrounding data creation and curate, and data creation and curation. And so in my view for the digital humanities pr- practitioner irrespective of humanities research the humanities the digital humanities whatever irrespective of all of that for the digital humanities practitioner there's a lot going on in the wider information sector that will benefit from the skills that you learn this week thank you